Good morning. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Lydia Villalba Lijo, and I represent the appellant in this matter, Cesar Rosario Lopez Ramos. A jury found Mr. Lopez Ramos guilty of first degree criminal sexual conduct. The strongest evidence against him were the statements that were made during a police interrogation that was translated, the statements were translated by an unseen and unidentified interpreter. The interpreter's statements were admitted through officer testimony, through a recording of the interrogation, and through a transcript of the interrogation. The interpreter, however, did not testify. The Court of Appeals initially focused its analysis on the question of whether the interpreter is the declarant of the statements that the interpreter made during the police interrogation. The Court of Appeals concluded that the interpreter was not the declarant, but the court was wrong. Counsel, let me ask a preliminary question here. I, I'm assuming that there is a uh, tape recording, um, scales tape recording, tape recording of the uh, statements that your client made and the interpreter's translation of those statements. Am I right about that? That's correct, Your Honor. It was recorded. So if that's true, one of the things that I'm struggling with here is, unlike some of the cases that you cite, uh, the scientific testimony, other, other kinds of circumstance, we have all of the information. What, what is there to cross-examine the uh, interpreter about? If there's some question about the accuracy of the translation, either side, both sides can challenge the accuracy. They can call an expert to come in and testify that the interpretation was not correct. Um, I, I don't see anything here for the for, their, for, for us to directly examine or to cross-examine the witness about. Your Honor, uh, it's correct, uh, as you stated, that the interrogation was, rec was recorded, and it's also correct that the uh, defense did not do a pretrial challenge to the, um, let, let's describe it as the accuracy of the statements themselves. Nonetheless, there is a host of things and issues, important factors that would be um, important to develop on cross-examination. And that would be the overall reliability of the translation. Not just the accuracy of the words, but the reliability of the translation. But that's... For instance, Your Honor, well, I'd, I'd like to, yes, uh, I'd like to completely answer your question. For instance... Easier for you to do that if I'm not interrupting you. Go ahead, go ahead and do that. Thank you, Your Honor. I appreciate that. I'm a little nervous myself. <laughs> um, whether the interpretation was affected by the fact that the interpreter was not present. This was an interpretation that was done by cell phone. It was not face-to-face. -face. So one question, one line of inquiry might be, how did the fact that this was conducted by a cell phone on speakerphone, how did that is there a possibility that that affected the translation? The interpreter is not able to see uh, facial gestures uh, or facial expressions, any gestures, the demeanor 
of the defendant. Those are all important. But counsel, the interpreter doesn't interpret facial gestures. I mean, generally, if in court, the interpreter will interpret like if a person says something in a very in excited fashion, they're supposed to repeat it in the excited fashion. But there's never been, at least in my experience, where an interpreter is interpreting facial gestures. So tell me why that matters. Well, nonetheless, Your Honor, that would contribute to the interpretation. A defendant, for instance, may indicate some puzzlement with the question, a facial expression or a gesture or a demeanor might uh, indicate uh, a miscommunication, a misunderstanding of what's being discussed. It's, it's overall part of the overall reliability of the translation and it's part of the input that the interpreter needs. But if, if, counsel, that, counsel, if that's true, then why wouldn't defense, the defense have put on an, an expert or witness at least saying um, to the jury, testifying to the jury, you just can't consider this translation reliable because the translator wasn't there. I mean, it looks like the evidence came in over objection, but then nothing was done to attack the reliability of the translation. Well, Your Honor, um, I would disagree with you. What was done was that during the testimony of Mr. Lopez Ramos, he did, during his testimony, he indicated misunderstanding, uh, miscommunication with the translator. I believe that he also testified that he had some awareness that a translator was there somewhere, but he didn't know where. And so those... Um, Counsel, I just want to check my understanding of the record. There was a videotape here too, but right? And did that capture uh, the defendant and the police officer at the at the police department? My recollection of that videotape is that it certainly captured the um, Mr. Lopez Ramos. And in the video, you can hear the translator's translations. Yes, Your Honor. Well, you can, yes, you can hear the, you can see the officer placing the cell phone on the table. So there's, there's Counsel, I there. <laughs> can actually see um, Mr. Lopez Ramos's uh, reactions during the entire um, um, interview, correct? Your Honor, I wouldn't say if during the entire interview, my memory just, just uh, isn't going to the entire interview, but I, can say pretty confidently that he's he's visible during um, during parts of the um, interrogation is my recollection. Counsel, if I could, I want to follow up on um, Justice Lillehog's uh, line of inquiry. Did do you believe, or did your client have any obligation? To, if you were concerned about the, the the accuracy of the translation, did he have any obligation to either subpoena his own translator or to uh, uh, push the issue, if you will, with the district court to force the state uh, to provide a separate translator? Maybe not the interpreter who actually did the interpretation, but um, but to provide someone at trial, did your client have any obligation to do that? Because I guess what concerns me, one of the things that concerns me when I look at this record is the inaction, if you will, uh, of def defense counsel here uh, to, to, subpoena, to, to subpoena someone. Your Honor, I... Uh, the, the question was whether, the, the first part of the question at least was whether there was an obligation to subpoena an interpreter. Correct. 
But as, as I understand it, not necessarily the interpreter who provided the interpretation? Well, either. He could not your client have subpoenaed this interpreter, or if not this interpreter, an interpreter to, to uh, verify the accuracy who would have been there. Your Honor, there is no obligation, and some of the cases that are cited in the brief refer to this. Some of the cases that I've cited as favorable to appellant's position refer to this or discuss this, but the defendant doesn't, the defendant has a right to confrontation and doesn't, the defendant here and defense attorney made the argument and made the assertion to vindicate that right. But counsel, is it, is, it, is it an accurate statement that actually the defense um, did not um, argue that there was an inaccuracy to the interpretation? Am I correct about that? You're correct that there was no argument to the interpretation, and that goes to Justice Anderson's initial question. What would be the utility of cross-examination? And then I have one Which other question, because in your brief on page 9, you indicate that the appellant during his testimony stated, quote, in that video, I had said that I had done things that I hadn't done. What impact does that, what seems to be an admission by your client um, when he testified during the trial have on the analysis of this case? I think that's on the bottom half of the page. Is that correct? Correct. It's okay. the last, um, starting with the last sentence on page 9 and then oh, going to the okay. top of page 10. In that video, I had said I had done things that I hadn't done. Okay, I'm sorry, Justice McKee. Did I pronounce that correctly? Could you please restate that question? Um, in his uh, testimony, he yes. says... In that video, I had said that I had done things that I hadn't done. What impact does that, which appears to me to be an admission, have on our analysis or on the case in, in and of itself? I think what it suggests uh, is that there was some, from the point of view of appellant, Mr. Lopez Ramos, he is asserting that there was a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. He is also clearly, when you look at the context of other uh, portions of his testimony, he seems to also clearly be asserting, A, uh, I was still intoxicated. B, I didn't understand why I was there. I didn't understand what all these questions but were. In but his, in his testimony, I agree he says that he was drinking the night before and he, was, he didn't have all his senses and he didn't know why he was there, but he still says and acknowledges that he, in fact, what he said on the video, he's not saying, I didn't say that. I he's saying, I don't know why I said that. So right. that seems to be an admission, which can be addressed during the cross-examination, and the jury will weigh that out. But what impact does that admission have on this, on, on this case? Because it seems to me that if you have this admission, where well, does that leave us? That's a, that's a good point, Your Honor. And um, I think what it goes to is that he's acknowledging that he made some statements. He's, he's acknowledging some statements, which also ties in to the fact that this statement was not uh, 
Defense Council didn't challenge it for accuracy, but nonetheless, there's a bigger issue, and that is reliability, the reliability of the statements. That's really what we're concerned with. And I started to answer well, some, Council, of the, some of the questions. Here, here's the problem I'm having, and it goes to harmless error. Let's say you're right that the confrontation clause was violated here, and it, the interpreter or an interpreter should have been on the stand. Then the question is, what effect did that have on the trial? And in your brief, you talk about how in admitting confessions, and especially in this case, admitting the confession in this case had a big effect on the case. But the confession itself came in, and there doesn't seem to be any dispute that the confession can come in, in Spanish. Was it harmless error to admit a, a, an interpretation and a transcript of that interpretation when the, the accuracy of the interpretation itself was not attacked by the defense? It is, it is, it was not harmless. It was clearly not harmless error, and I can give you several factors why it wasn't. Now, your question is the admission of the, the tape and the transcript, right? That's My question is the admission of the translation, mm -hmm. both on tape and by way of transcript. Well, again, why, why no was the admission of what, by, by all accounts, seems to be on the critical questions um, answered by the defendant, an accurate transcript. Why, why was it harmful error for that to come in? Because a defendant's own confession is the most probative and damaging evidence that can be admitted against him. And it's gonna have a profound effect on the jury. And in this case, there's no cross-examination or, or testimony by the interpreter. So not only did we have an interpreter who did a cell phone interpretation, not an in-person interpretation. That interpreter was not sworn. So we also do not know what impact that might have had on the interpreter's perception. Well, my question goes to harmless error. Mm -hmm. And the question is, um, is, there, is there a live dispute about whether the defendant said he had intercourse with SVR? that he did not use a condom and that he ejaculated. Is the accuracy of that translation at issue and was it at issue in this case? Well, it's at issue and uh, again, it, it's at issue if you look at the defendant's testimony where he's clearly indicating that there was miscommunication and misunderstanding. He did not understand. Counsel, there was, was uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a certified Spanish interpreter sworn in and present during the court proceedings, is that accurate? That's accurate to my understanding, Your Honor. And was there any, um, does the record show if it's, show us if there was any request or um, movement to try to, to bring that interpreter or have that interpreter sworn to address the issues that you're raising? No, not during court, not during the, not during the trial. Is, if I understand your question, your question is, was the court interpreter somehow uh, invoked or requested to either uh, elaborate or to clarify any statements of the defendant? The questions that defense was raising, yes, okay, that's my question. And that, right, I do not recall that in the record. Thank you. Would that be the defense's obligation or the state's obligation on the confrontation clause to bring in an actual person to testify, perhaps the court? certified court interpreter. Would that be on your defendant's obligation to, to say, court interpreter, will you come in and translate this for us so we have someone to cross-examine? Or is that up to the state? 
I'm a little confused by your question just because I'm trying to understand I'm, or I'm, I'm trying to sort out whether. Um... So my question is, Justice McCaig is asking you, right. wasn't there a certified court interpreter in the courtroom right. which could maybe mitigate against the concern about not having the actual interpreter at the interrogation in place? Okay, and I'm no. asking no, whose burden is it to actually have the witness there? Well, Your Honor, the, um, I don't think that a courtroom interpreter could vindicate or somehow undo or answer for the interpretation that was done during the police interrogation. That's a wholly separate uh, issue, and that sort of gets us into the question of surrogate testimony, which was discussed in the Bullcoming decision. Right. But that courtroom interpreter, what, what happened in the courtroom with that inter with the interpreter there and what happened during the police interrogation, that those are completely separate issues in, in some ways. And there was no, um, the record indicates no concern with interpretation in, in the courtroom itself. In other and words- Can I just concern? ask one other question? Because that, that clarifies that for me, thank you. Yes, Your Honor. Well, as I read the briefs, and maybe I missed something, and maybe this is more for the state, but I, I didn't see a harmless error argument raised. Um, there's and so are, is there a reason that we're trying to actually like get an answer to this legal question? Because maybe that's more a question for the state, but I, I actually didn't see that issue, issue raised. It's addressed in my brief, Your Honor, why the admission of the statements was not harmless. Counsel, can I just take you to the legal question for a minute? And if we yes, agree Honor. with you that the declarant here is the interpreter, does that mean then that court reporters who transcribe proceedings in court are the declarant and not the person that the court reporter is typing uh, the testimony from. Okay, let me make sure I understand. So the court reporters who translate or who re record statements in court, yes. would they be? Yes, if, if, if the declarant, here is, as you argue, yes. the interpreter and not the defendant, then I'm just wondering if the logical extension of that rule would not be that court reporters are declarants. Court, court reporters who are taking down everything that is being said in the courtroom, are they then effectively declarants under the same analysis that you're advocating here? No, not, no, Your Honor. We could say <clears throat> that the court reporter becomes a declarant in the sense that the court reporter is taking information and they're communicating and converting that into a transcript, but that doesn't make the court reporter a declarant for the purposes of the testimonial statement, which is what uh, we're talking about here, uh, or which, which is what's at issue here. Moreover, there's also how is there a different though for, difference from in terms of the legal question? Well, there's safeguards uh, with the use of court interpreters in their in their use in their talking about court reporters now, not not court interpreters, but the actual reporter. I mean, there's there's um, safeguards, aren't there? I mean, there's, for instance, public defenders who look over transcripts, um, defense attorneys who look over transcripts. But what do I those mean, safeguards have to do with the legal question of who the declarant is? Well, the... I mean, the safeguards seem to go to the questions of reliability, which, of course, Crawford said, we're not concerned with reliability. We have to figure out who the declarant is. 
Well, I'm, uh, I would have to say that strictly speaking, one could say that a court reporter is a declarant because the court reporter is receiving information, communicating that information, creating a transcript, but they're certainly not a declarant the way that uh, an interpreter is during a police interrogation. That, that's wholly different. I mean, the court, inter the interpreter that's at issue in this case was not a court, re was not a court interpreter. In fact, we don't have any information about this interpreter at but all. See, this goes back to the question that I sort of began this, our discussion this morning with. Um, there, there is no challenge here to the accuracy of the interpretation um, and the data and information necessary to make that challenge is present. Uh, and so it doesn't seem to me, uh, you, and this goes to the question of whether or not they're a declarant, whether they're certified or not, or whether they're employed by the court system or employed by the police department, whoever, none of that matters. Mm -hmm. The question becomes if, whether they're the declarant. And if they're the declarant, in this, if, if the interpreter here is the declarant, then it seems to me any interpreter um, testifying uh, at trial, or not testifying, but, but translating testimony at trial is a declarant. And the Chief Justice is, is correct as well that, that uh, court reporters are declarants as well. All of those folks are subject to cross-examination. Isn't that a logical conclusion of what you've just said? No, it's not a logical conclusion, Your Honor. I mean, this, this is very different. Again, we have to go to, when we look at the interpreter in this case, we're discussing an interpreter who interrogated or, or who participated in a police interrogation. When we're talking about court reporters and in-court interpreters, they may be, in, a, in the broad sense, declarants, in the sense that they're taking information, they're making assertions, they're not declarants for the purposes of the Confrontation Clause, which is but, really- But that's, it, where is that distinction made in Crawford? I mean, I mean, with this whole question of reliability, Crawford sort of dismisses and says it's a legal question, not a reliability question. You're going to the accuracy of the work that these individuals do. Well, uh, Your Honor, I'm not only discussing the accuracy, I mean, in response to your question, I'm also discussing the overall reliability of that evidence being admitted to trial. Is now, a court reporter testimony, is a transcript of a court reporter of a trial, is that testimonial? Is that prepared in anticipation of bringing evidence against a defendant at trial? Um, that hasn't been explored in any of the cases. That well, I, I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. I think the distinction between a, cro oh, a, right. a court reporter and a, an interpreter is that this isn't brought forward. I, I don't know that that's like a legitimate legal distinction. But counsel, what, so if it is, if, if your argument is that it's testimonial, what fact is the interpreter trying to prove? If, if we're, okay, so the, yeah, that's okay. It's a complicated, um, it's a complicated question. I honestly wish we had more than 30 minutes to discuss it. Okay, so the interpreter, okay, maybe one way to, to get at this is to talk about, um, okay, so what the Court of Appeals found was that the interpreter here was, was uh, not the declarant and that the interpreter's statements could be attributed to the defendant. Our position is no, that's not accurate because interpreters are more than mere conduits. 
interpreters. So, counsel, you're saying a court reporter is a mere conduit? Well, again, a court reporter is not what we're, with all due respect, Justice Lillehog, but a court reporter is not what we're uh, discussing. Well, I, I know it's we're not, not, I know we're talking not, about an it's interpreter. Not implicated here. I know we're talking about an interpreter, but mm -hmm. there's been a line of questioning about court reporters, and I wonder if, you're, if you're, you're, you or your client have a position on whether a court reporter is a mere conduit. Well, um, In other words, to, mm -hmm. to give you a chance to think about that for just a second, there are potential implications to saying that a translator is a declarant. So for example, you could have a pretrial hearing where the defendant testifies, and then at trial, the prosecution offers a transcript of what the defendant testified to in the pretrial hearing. Is there a confrontation clause issue there where the court reporter has to be called to lay foundation for the fact this really was the defendant's admission during a pretrial hearing? So if a transcript is prepared and there's questions about that transcript, then, then there's other mechanisms. Irrespective of whether there are questions about the transcript, as a matter of the confrontation clause, does the report, court reporter have to be called? Because the court reporter is the declarant, is a declarant. Well, Your Honor, frankly, it, it seems very far afield that the court reporter would be, uh, you know, called as a, as a confrontation clause witness uh, I, I, may, I th Maybe you think these multiple questions about court reporters are far afield, mm -hmm. but there's a, there's a conceptual link here mm -hmm. as to who's a declarant. And if, some, if a court reporter transcribing a transcript is a declarant in the same way that an interpreter is a declarant, then there, there may be some logical implications coming from the position that your client is taking in this case. <laughs> I would have to disagree with that, Your Honor. And again, we ha I think what we, uh, what we need to focus on here is that we're not discussing court reporters. And I do understand the counsel. The, the I think the link is that the court yes. reporters have to have to be giving an accurate um, repetition or an accurate uh, record, right? That's what they're there for. Right. And interpreters, it's the same. It's an accurate representation of what the um, declarant said. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why we're asking, like, tell us the difference. Where does, the, where does that part weighs? Well, you know, again, I would have to bring it back then to the, to the creation of testimonial statements that are, I mean, then I think we start to talk about the creation of testimonial statements. And that's really why the interpreter in this case, during a police interrogation, why that becomes a significant issue in the context of this police interrogation where you have an interpreter who is involved in the making of testimonial statements, testimonial statements that are statements that are uh, taken for the Just use the word involved. So that's, I think, where I get to the, what's the problem for me. Okay. Involved is very different than being the declarant themselves. Would you not agree? I uh, think there's, and again, you know, I use that word involved, they made we, we can say the, test, the interpreter in this case made the testimonial statements. You know, interpretation is an art. It's not a science. It's an area that's ripe for errors. You know, just as uh, a scientific analyst uses education, training, and skills to comprehend information that's received. Isn't the same true of court reporters? I mean, if you've ever been to a football game and seen a transcript of the announcements coming across the, the big screen, mm -hmm. they're full of mistakes. 
great court reporters really, they, they, it is both an art and a skill. So why isn't that the same as, a, as an interpreter, a court reporter? A court reporter. Well, I, I think I've, I've tried answering that question several ways and I'm unfortunately okay. not, not uh, providing a satisfactory answer. So I apologize for that. All right, we'll let, let it rest. We'll let it rest then, okay, that's fine. Okay, thank you, I appreciate it. Um, let us discuss very quickly, please. Um, I would like to discuss why under um, the Nazemian factors, the interpreter in this case would still be a declarant. So in other words, accepting the Court of Appeals um, analysis under the Nazemian factors, uh, the court applied four factors. Which party provided the interpreter? Was there evidence of bias or motive? training or skills of the interpreter, and subsequent actions taken in reliance of the translated statements. Now in this case, this is, it's highly significant here that the state provided next to no information about the interpreter. Again, we don't see the interpreter, and the interpreter is only identified by his first name at the outset of the interrogation. Um, there's no information whatsoever about the interpreter's training, his experience, his skills, his education, um, Were they asked for that information the as, as part of uh, the pretrial process where it was the state asked for that information? Have they refused to provide it or they just didn't volunteer it? Well, when the state, when the prosecutor was asked to make his uh, offer of proof on the record, he uh, was unable to provide any information. In fact, the prosecutor uh, was uncertain where the uh, call center or where the interpreter was physically located. So taking these factors as a whole, and I think the standard is pre preponderance of the evidence. And, and if there had been some challenge to the accuracy of the translation, then the inability of the state to provide that information might be a relevant issue. Is it a relevant issue now? It is a relevant issue now, because the, the Court of Appeals relied on these Nazemian factors to determine that the interpreter was not the declarant and that the statements could be attributed to Mr. Lopez Ramos when the fact of the matter is we know absolutely nothing about the interpreter. But counsel, your position doesn't depend on the quality of the interpreter. As I understand your client's position, you could have the greatest Spanish-English interpreter in the world certified by many organizations um, with a reputation for being perfect. And yet if that translation occurred out of court, and the interpreter did not appear in court, then there'd be a violation of the Confrontation Clause, right? That's absolutely correct, and that summarizes our position very well. Thank you, Your Honor. I'm Thank out of time. Thank you, Counsel. You have, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Smith.
Good morning. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Travis Smith and I represent the respondent state of Minnesota in this appeal. As I think the court has recognized, the fundamental question presented in this case, properly framed, is this. When parties communicate through an interpreter, who is the declarant of the statements made during the conversation? The parties or the interpreter? Fortunately, this court answered this very question in 1892, when in Miller v. Lathrop, it held that when two persons voluntarily agree upon a third to act as interpreter between them, the latter is to be regarded as the agent of the each. But counsel, isn't that a little bit different? Because in that instance, it was parties actually agreeing that this third person was going to be the interpreter. So there was some input. I, 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 don't, I don't think it's different because I think the test is the same. And so we're, what we're faced with is a question here of whether there was agreement. And it's the state's position that there was agreement. And I know appellant maintains that the, he didn't consent to the interpreter, but the reality is that he did. He was advised of his Miranda rights, advised of the fact that he did not have to speak with the police, and that happened through the interpreter. And did the, uh, did the Miranda warning in the discussion of use of the interpreter reference the fact that the interpretation could be used at trial without calling the interpreter as a witness? No, it didn't specifically, it, it didn't, it didn't so advise that. So there doesn't that. seem to be an, a voluntary agreement to waive his confrontation clause rights. And that's not my argument. My argument isn't about any sort of waiver of confrontation rights. Yeah, but you're relying on the 1892 case to, to say it's settled, there was an agreement. Well, don't, don't we have to look at whether there was an agreement in this case? I, we, we do have to look at whether there was an agreement in this case. And, and, and I absolutely agree with that. I, my, my position is that Miller v. Lathrop establishes the test that this court should use. And, and I think the facts here, uh, when they're examined in their totality, demonstrate that there is agreement, despite appellants after the fact uh, contentions to the contrary. Because the only way he could possibly have agreed to speak with this officer was through the interpreter that the officer was using. And he agreed to do so. And never once during the conversation did he indicate through the interpreter that he was misunderstanding what's going on. As the Court of Appeals pointed out, when you look at the interchange between the officer and the appellant, it's clear that there's an understanding. The answers that the appellant gives in response to the interpreted questions are sophisticated. They, in they indicate the appellant's understanding that he's in some sort of trouble. He immediately jumps to giving an explanation for why it's not what the victim alleged it is. There's no misunderstanding here. Setting that aside, the fundamental question isn't about the reliability or the accuracy. First and foremost, it's about the identity of the declarant. And the Confrontation Clause provides no guidance as to how to answer that question. Is there something you, troubling here, counsel, about the um, use of a language line interpreter here where we don't know who the individual is, we don't know where they are, we have no idea about their competence. Now, maybe in this case, it ultimately doesn't matter because there really is no challenge to the accuracy. That's a discussion that we've had with opposing counsel, but it does strike me that um, the, the appellant here is not wrong to be concerned about the complete anonymity of the person providing the services. There may be some legitimacy to that concern. Uh, first of all, I don't think that this person was completely anonymous and had 
there been some sort of pretrial challenge to the accuracy and reliability of the interpretation, a record could have been fully developed on that. I, the, the interpreter was identified by at least a first name during the call. We know the time of the call, the date. Certainly there could have been efforts made to, to contact the language line and find out who that interpreter was. They're not completely anonymous interpreters. And these, these language line interpreters have been used in district courts throughout Minnesota historically to do in-court interpretation. We're talking about a professional interpreter service. It may not be in person, but the reality of life in places especially like outstate Minnesota is that you don't always have in-person interpreters available even for in-court proceedings. Well, let's test on the identity of the interpreter has anything to do with the constitutional question. Let's say instead of calling the AT&T interpreter line, the interrogating police officer said, I've got um, a uh, secretary right down the hall who understands Spanish very well. Let's bring him in here and uh, use him for an interpretation. Could that secretary's interpretation be admitted at trial it, 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 without I, the secretary being present to testify? I believe it could be if, if, the, if the district court concludes that the interpretation is fairly attributable to the defendant, that it is his statement. And that's what things like the Nazemian factors, or even the, the, that would go certainly to the voluntariness of the agreement and would address some of the concerns that this court kind of nodded toward in Mitchens. And, but even there, where a police officer was acting as the interpreter, that, that interpretation was allowed. Now, granted, there the, inter, the police officer, if I remember correctly, was present to testify. But the independence is, is certainly a factor I think that can be considered, but the question is attributability. Who are the statements attributed to? And I think the questions the court has posed about court reporters are particularly apropos, because especially when we're talking about stenographic court reporters, they're interpreters. They listen to statements made in English. They translate those statements into stenographic notes. And they need to apply their skill and judgment and an understanding of context as well in performing that interpretation, isn't that right? That's correct. Just in the same way that a, a language interpreter needs to apply skill and learning and context so that if there's uh, a word in one language that has maybe four or five meanings in the other language, you have to pick which meaning. Absolutely. And we, but counsel, isn't, isn't the key here though, whether the statements in question are testimonial? I mean, it, to me, in, in some respects, it goes back to just sort of first principles of Crawford. Uh, whether you're talking about a court rec reporter or an interpreter in court, say in a, in a civil matter, it's, Crawford made clear that what it was referencing, that the confrontation clause only comes into play when you're talking about testimonial statements. And, and none of what we've been talking about so far, I would, would I put, or does Crawford put into that category of testimonial statements, statements that are being offered against the defendant in a criminal matter that um, are, are used in a prosecutorial fashion, which is exactly what this was. These other instances don't seem to me to implicate the confrontation clause in the same way that this statement does. Well, I, I, I think that's certainly a good question to ask. But the answer is that you can't know whether a statement is testimonial until you know who the declarant is. 
this is certainly borne out in the U.S. Supreme Court's jurisprudence developing Crawford, where the question of whether something is testimonial depends, at least in part, upon the purpose of both the police officer in this case and whoever the declarant is. And the cases arising out of Crawford and its progeny, first of all, assume that the interrogation involves only two people. And let's be clear, here the police officer was not interrogating the interpreter. The police officer was interrogating the appellant. If the police officer was interrogating the interpreter, as appellant's logic suggests, the police officer wasn't actually conducting the interrogation either. The interpreter was interrogating himself because by appellant's logic, which rests upon a universal pre premise, the statements the interpreter made in Spanish that reflected the questions of the officer were not the officer's questions. Counsel, that's that view, you're, you're certainly correct that this idea of a language conduit that Nazamian, am I pronouncing that correctly? I, I pronounce it Nazamian, I don't Nazamian. know. <laughs> we'll go with Nazamian. That, that, um, that theory, the language conduit theory, is certainly um, prevalent uh, across the nation. But there are also a number of cases, granted a minority view, there are also a number of cases like Charles out of the uh, 11th Circuit, which say, no, no, that's too simple of, a, of an analysis, that when you have uh, a police officer, as in, in this instance, Mr. Brouillet, when he testifies about what Mr. Lopez Ramos uh, said, what he's really testifying to are the out-of-court statements of the translator, because he didn't understand what Mr. Lopez Ramos said. He did not know. And so what he's really testifying to when you break it down is to what the translator said Mr. Lopez Ramos said. And a number of courts are adopting that theory, in, I believe, because it is truer to the purposes of the Confrontation Clause. Because you have here a statement made by a defendant under a police interrogation that clearly was going to be used for prosecutorial purposes. And that's what the Confrontation Clause was designed to protect. And so I guess my question is, uh, why not if that is true, or maybe that's the question, do you agree with that, why not follow Charles as opposed to Nazmian, which is based upon pre-Crawford hearsay analysis that, that Crawford rejected? A couple of things. First, Charles and Taylor, which is the only other case that I'm aware of at this point in time, which is a Maryland Court of Appeals decision, are based on the universal principle. They're based on the difficulty of language translation. They make no attempt to say why that, that, why that principle, that language is difficult, that there's added content, essentially, such that the interpreter becomes another declarant, doesn't apply in other contexts. And that is destructive. That universal principle is destructive to the, way, to the way we conduct court proceedings. For example, defendants are required to personally waive their jury trial rights. If a non-English speaking defendant appears in court and through an interpreter attempts to waive their jury trial right by the universal principle that underlies Charles and Taylor, we cannot know ultimately if that's actually what the defendant said. It, essentially, they're saying there's something added every time an interpreter is involved. That's the principle that underlies Charles and Taylor and why they say that these that interpreters 
are witnesses. That principle doesn't change with the scenery. It doesn't change when the interpreter takes an oath. Crawford would even suggest that that becomes a much bigger problem when the interpreter takes an oath. The oath transforms things undoubtedly into testimonial in nature. Another example would be a defendant attempting to represent themselves if they don't speak English. Whether that's a wise or foolish choice, ultimately, generally speaking, is the defendant's to make. But the defendant who doesn't speak English can't do that if the declarant, if the interpreter adds something when they translate the statements. This universal principle, if accepted, is destructive. It's an acid that dissolves the ability of non-English speakers to effectively participate in not only our criminal justice system, but our civil justice system. Again, counsel, why is that the case when, again, the fault line seems to be whether it's testimonial? None of those examples you gave are involved testimonial statements that are being used against the defendant in a prosecutorial fashion. So if you're in a TPR situation or what any other civil situation, um, you would use, why wouldn't you use interpreters in the same fashion that we use them now? Because I share your concern. I share your concern. I, I, I don't think we want, I think we need to be concerned about what are the, you know, other implications of adopting Charles and how would that impact uh, inter in the interpretations that go on every day in courtrooms across the state. Um, but it seems to me the fault line is is whether or not it's being used for a testimonial purpose. So if you're in a TPR and the uh, the the parent is not uh, English is not their first language, you would still use interpreters in the same way we do every day because they're not dealing. You're not dealing with a testimonial statement. You're not being. It's not being used prosecutorially. It's not. It's not criminal. It's not a criminal matter. Uh First, the definition of testimony in Crawford, the notion of whether something is testimonial, is not strictly, it's not strictly limited. Obviously, the confrontation clause itself is strictly limited, but the nature of the statements that are testimonial are the nature of statements, statements given under oath. Those statements are testimonial. Now, we could look to, the, to, to, to explore a further implication. For example, if you have a, a sworn out-of-court statement but without a prior opportunity to cross-examine, it's unlikely under the rules of evidence that that would be admissible under the hearsay rules. Now, an important point is Crawford didn't try to entirely divorce the Confrontation Clause jurisprudence from the law of evidence. It said there's one test for reliability, the one that the, the, one that the Constitution demands, and that's confrontation. But that doesn't mean that every out-of-court statement is testimonial. And, and even I agree with that. I mean, and, and we all know Crawford and its progeny, you know, it, defining what's testimonial is still not entirely clear, even after Crawford. I, I grant you that. But the one thing that Crawford said is clearly testimonial and that there is no question about are police interrogations. I mean, that category, uh, Crawford carved out a, a box and said, bingo, that's testimonial. And that's exactly what we have here. But not if the interpreter is the declarant. Because, and, that, and, and, that, and that's why we have to answer the fundamental question first of who the declarant is. 
because if the interpreter is the declarant, then we have an entirely new and different sort of situation. It looks like a police interrogation, but it's complicated. And, the, and, when, and if the interpreter is the declarant, then we have to well, take What's the complicated about the state then in these limited number of cases? I mean, it's not like, I mean, most cases are resolved by a guilty plea. And for those that are not, and that are actually going to trial, how difficult, and I'm, I'm truly asking, how difficult, not just rhetorically, how difficult is it for the state on that small percentage of cases to say, oh, okay, we've got to make sure we have that translator, either that, that interpreter come in to be cross-examined, or at a minimum provide an independent interpreter to review that transcript and, and who would then be available for cross-examination. How do, I mean, what, what are the practicalities of that? It seems to me that's not a terribly difficult thing to do, given that you're not, wouldn't be required to do it in every case. Uh, certainly, I, I, it, it would be, it would have some level of difficulty, almost certainly in this context, it would involve something like an out-of-state subpoena process and that sort of thing, which is not overly burdensome. I'm not arguing that the practicalities of, of obtaining the presence of the interpreter justify dispensing with, uh, with cross-examining the interpreter. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that that argument ultimately prevails. And I, I also ag I agree with Appellant that having some other independent interpreter say, well, this transcript is accurate, that interpretation was accurate, that's surrogate testimony that I think Bullcoming would say you can't have. What we could do uh, is, is, especially in this case, since the recording actually recorded Appellant's Spanish language statements, I suppose we could have the in-court interpreter offer a simultaneous translation of those Spanish language statements while the statement is being played for the jury. Now, that's a possibility. That wouldn't be overly difficult. It would be somewhat complicated because of making a record and having making sure everybody hears the right parts and you probably have to stop and start and that sort of thing. But... Counsel, here's the question that I have though. But would that in-court interpreter under the um, defendant's argument then have to be cross-examined? That's my position that the in-court interpreter would have to be cross-examined. So in every in-court in interpretation case involving a defendant's statement, um, you'd, have, you'd have the possibility of interpreters being cross-examined. I believe so, because of the universal nature of the argument and the fact that the interpreter becomes a declarant and the uh, defendant has the right to cross-examine the witnesses against them. Again, if the, if the out-of-court interpreter is a witness against the defendant here, is a declarant, which they must be to be a witness. So then, counsel, what's your answer to the um, question posed about court reporters? My answer to the question posed about court reporters is that court reporters are not declarants. Cool. The analysis proposed by defense counsel, would they be considered declarant? Yes, under, under defense counsel's analysis, court import reporters would have to be considered declarants. Counsel, in this case, um, the Spanish statement was admitted, the, court the interpreter's translation was admitted, and a transcript of the interpretation was admitted. Let's hypothesize that for whatever reason, the Spanish statement just disappeared. It got erased over. All we have are the court reporter's interpretation and the transcript. Um, can that be admitted without calling the court reporter? Absolutely. Why? Because the court reporter isn't a declarant. The court reporter is making a record 
of what was said, contemporaneous with, with, with when it happens. Because the court reporter, if the court reporter is doing their job, just like a, a foreign language interpreter, is not adding any content, not adding or generating any information. How do you know, how do you know that, though? In your, in your very well-written and color, characteristically colorful brief, you gave a German example where someone speaking German sa says essentially, I read a book yesterday, and you said, there's only one interpretation. But there are many uh, words in German that are subject to multiple meanings. For example, gemütlich. You put that into the translator, you get five different meanings. You've got cozy, comfortable, homely, pleasant, and homey. So um, why isn't the, the interpreter a declarant in representing what the speaker intended to say. This, this, isn't just a, this isn't a telephone, it's not a conduit. There's judgment and skill and interpretation involved in interpreting. That's correct, but if we, if, if we accept that it's, because that principle doesn't actually stop at foreign languages. It could involve conversations between two English speakers and I might use words that someone might be talking to me and use words that I don't understand. And if I don't understand their meaning, how do I, how do I know that that's what they said? Well, that's why we make the uh, interpreter appear at trial. Certainly that might shed some light on whether a particular word was, trans, was interpreted accurately, but that doesn't go to the attributability of the statement, and that's what the rub is here. Isn't the interpreter making a representation that this is what the, uh, the declarant said? No. I, it, under appellant's- You speak to me in German and I translate, I'm saying, Travis Smith said the following in this language. Isn't that, a, am, I not, am I not a declarant as well as an interpreter? You're, you're not because you're not generating the information because the content remains that of the original speaker. Because if the interpreter is saying, well, he told me this, the interpreter is doing it wrong. We don't let interpreters do that. We don't let them give summary interpretations. Okay, let me try this hypothetical on you then. Let's assume there's a, somebody's been charged with murder is sitting in prison and a newspaper reporter goes to the prison. And during the interview of the prisoner, the prisoner says, I killed her. And the newspaper reporter faithfully records that on notes and then an article comes out that the prisoner confessed to killing. Is, is the, either the reporter's notes or the newspaper article admissible or would to do so violate the confrontation clause? The, the reporter's notes or, uh or this is a article. great reporter, by the way. Impeccable reputation. Got it down exactly. Certainly. Those things add another level of hearsay. I'm not talking about hearsay. I'm talking about confrontation clause. The documents don't... The problem there is not the confrontation issue. The problem is that there's an added level of hearsay because you don't have the person who generated those statements because those statements are indisputably those of the newspaper reporter. Council, what I... The quote, though. What if all they introduce is there's a quote in the newspaper article, these are the words of the defendant, and they're using those words. Those aren't the statements of the newspaper reporter, right? Strictly speaking, if it's an exact quote, no, they're not. But 
So wouldn't you have, but so that could just come in without any confrontation clause problem? No, I don't believe that can come in because of any confrontation clause, but without a confrontation clause problem. And, and what you have Well, there, in that case, we've actually got two English speakers, so the chance of the re newspaper reporter being, the, the quotation being reliable, it's even better than if there's an interpretation. One would think that, but the newspaper reporter's job is, is, is not to facilitate communication. It's, it, it's to, to write an article. It's to sell newspapers. So Can interpreters you, are different. You know, this idea not to communicate information, I, I guess I want to go back to Justice Lohog's initial point, which you disagreed with, that the interpreters are making a representation about what the defendant is saying. And I think your answer to that was, no, that's not correct. But I'm just wondering how that can be. I mean, when you look at just, you know, what I found interesting, in the during the trial, during the actual trial, when they had the other interpreter, at one point, uh, Mr. Lopez Ramos uh, makes the statement that Justice McKay talked about. He says, I was being asked questions I was not understanding. And at least as I read the, the transcript, the court interpreter's interpretation of that was, I was under fear. And I thought to myself, my goodness, to me, those are not the same things at all. To say I, that I was under fear is the same as I was being asked questions I was not understanding, to equate those two. And so to me, that is the essence of judgment and interpretation uh, and representation. It is no different, it seems to me, than in Bullcoming when the Supreme Court said we're not going, that, that, that the, the problem in Bullcoming is that the surrogate interpreter was exercising independent judgment. So how are those different? And, and, and again, this trial testimony, it seems to me, is the essence of the problem here, which is why you need that person there to have that cross-examination to say, well, wait a minute. May I answer? Yes. The, first of all, you notice in the trial testimony, the interpreter noticed something confusing and took time to clarify with the appellant to, to, to clarify that. The interpreter in the police interrogation certainly had an opportunity to do that. The record demonstrates that there was no confusion. There was no misunderstanding. And I understand the question is, how, how does that not mean that the interpreter is adding information? The interpreter's job, if there's, if there's confusion, is to go back to the original language speaker and not to simply guess, not to add information. And the interpreter would be surrogate testimony for the appellant's testimony. Concluding anything otherwise means that Spanish language statements, even when they're recorded like they were here, are unreachable. Justice Thiessen has a question as well. Yeah, I, my question, what, what uh, what's the status of harmless error analysis in this? I just, I didn't see the argument really made. And so are you, do you just want to get to the legal issue? Where are we on that? I, I think the legal issue is an important one and that should be resolved at some point in time. I did not specifically make a harmless error argument in my brief to this court. I did argue that to the Court of Appeals. Um, so I think that there's a good argument that the error here is harmless, especially given the fact that the recording that was admitted 
contained the appellant's actual Spanish language statements. Given that fact, I don't know what more the state could possibly have done to produce his statement. If, if interpretation always adds content, the state could have done nothing more to present his statement to the jury. It presented it in the very, very words, the very Spanish language words he used to make his statement. And that's important because words are different than statements. Statements are assertions. Words just make up statements. And words translate back and forth. Maybe not always one-to-one, -one, but a lot of times they do. Maybe not always concept for concept, but a lot of times they do. And for that reason, interpreters are not declarants. The appellant was the state, the, the declarant of the statements he made through the interpreter. A lot of times sufficient when you're talking about a person's Sixth Amendment constitutional right to cross-examination, to confrontation. I'm sorry, I, I, missed, I missed the first part of your question. Is a lot of times good enough when you're talking about someone being prosecuted for first degree crim sex and in light of their constitutional Sixth Amendment right to confrontation, is, is, is that what, what we're gonna say in Minnesota, that a lot of times is okay? No, that's not what I'm asking the court to say. I'm asking the court to recognize that the identity of the declarant is an antecedent question. It is not a confrontation clause question. It's an antecedent question that the district courts are well positioned to answer through thorough pretrial hearings on the attributability and if need be, the accuracy of the interpretation. Counsel, your red light's on. Aye. Thank you. Ms. Leho, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Leho, as you're getting prepared there, what, what do we do or how do we address the state's uh, position, and it's one that the Court of Appeals took as well, that you have this antecedent question, that you never get to whether or not the statement was testimonial, you never get to con the confrontation clause, and, and, and the Court of Appeals didn't. They didn't even, I think they mentioned the word testimonial maybe once or twice in passing because they were answering this antecedent question. What's your response to that? Well, thank you for the question because that's exactly why I stood up for rebuttal. Um, I was very concerned about um, Mr. Smith saying that you can't know if it's a testimonial statement until you know who the declarant is, which is backwards. When you look at the cases, when you look at Crawford, Bullcoming, Melendez-Diaz, Charles and Taylor, all of those cases determined first that these are testimonial statements uh, testimonial statements invoke the protections of the confrontation clause and then if necessary you make a determination about who the declarant is um, in the Taylor case that court decided that the statements were testimonial and then answered the question I think there's a the question is uh, are interpreters exempt from the confrontation clause counsel do you and disagree that the first question is whether the um, interpreter is the declarant? You don't believe that that is the first question that has to be answered before you move on to whether it's testimonial? I agree that uh, answering, I, I can understand from the point of view of the Court of Appeals and certainly from the point of view of the state why they would want that question answered first, 
but as I addressed in the brief, answering that question first really gives short shrift to the context of the, uh, and to the nature of the statements themselves. Testimonial statements. Uh, I really cannot overstate that enough. Moreover, in this case, and I have to point this out, in this case we have the paradigmatic example of a testimonial statement that requires counsel, a testimony. Can you just address the opposing counsel's point about adding information? And, it, and I wonder if there, isn't, if there aren't some legs there. I mean, the whole point of interpreters is not to add information. The whole point of court reporters is not to add information. The court reporters and the interpreters are supposed to be telling us what the witness said or what the defendant said. They're not supposed to add stuff. So doesn't that help us in figuring out who the declarant is here? Testimonial state, what I'd like to say about that is that interpreters are not conduits. They bring education, knowledge, But skills, they're so supposed they to be. I mean, the whole point, the whole reason we have interpreters and court reporters is to be conduits of information. They are not conduits because they bring their certain knowledge to it and they create something. They create a translation. Is it not a, it's supposed it's to be like, a literal translation, which is why sometimes it doesn't exactly make sense, but it is a literal translation of the words posed by the non-English speaker, correct? Uh, it, it's not always word by word, sometimes it's concepts, but also when you consider things like colloquial or idiomatic expressions, I mean, there is, a, there is intellectual work that is going on with interpreters, just as with lab analysts, and this court has recognized that in the case law where this court has said interpretation is more an art than a science. There's also a language in the cases that clearly discusses um, interpreters can make, interpreters and witnesses like lab analysts, they can make errors, they make mistakes. And you know what? That's subject to cross-examination. We need to test the reliability. Um, I would like to leave you with the statement from, um, from, the, from Taylor. The, the court said, by treating the interpreter as nothing more than a neutral mouthpiece, through which the defendant's message is passed without being affected in any way, the state asks us to endorse a fallacy or misconception that ignores the reality of language interpretation. Translating or interpreting another language into English is no simple task. Council, maybe Council maybe the, one fine, oh, go ahead, just Thank you. The, the problem I have here is that Unlike Crawford and many of the other cases, this is really a different kind of, the, the interpreter is a different kind of, of person. And I don't, I don't even, I, when I go to the language of the confrontation clause, it says witnesses against the defendant. And you know, you look at Crawford, the lady there was present for the stabbing. Or you look at the lab cases where they're actually supplying an element of the crime. And here the person, is only saying, wh whether it's accurate or not, they're only saying what the defendant said. So it seems to me, it just seems to me a whole different type of confrontation issue that the framers wouldn't have considered if, if we go to Crawford's rationale. I just have trouble expanding it to this new class of people. Well, Your Honor, I think that Crawford, Melendez-Diaz, Bullcoming, 
Charles, Taylor, those cases, those cases establish that witnesses who are not accusatorial, witnesses who were not present, witnesses who are not considered typical witnesses, where testimonial statements are involved, they are declarants and their testimony is required. The Chief Justices, let me ask one more question. Um, is there anything in the record that shows that the defendant's statement that he had intercourse with SVR was not, not reliably reported or interpreted by the, the translator? Is there anything in the record? Casting doubt on the reliability of the translation of that particular statement. Well, the defendant's testimony is that he was not understood. He, he, from his point of view, there was miscommunication and misunderstanding going on. I would. That's, that's not my question. The question, okay. the, the translation was that he had intercourse with SVR. Is there anything in the record casting doubt on the translation of his, the defendant's statement into English on that, as to that particular statement? Your Honor, there's nothing in the record that shows us it was tested the way the Confrontation Clause requires it to be tested. Now, to, to test the reliability of that statement, the interpreter needed to be present to, to testify and to be subject to cross-examination. I'm not, uh, now the record as it stands doesn't undermine that. But, but the point is that I'm trying to make it needed to be tested. Thank you, Thank counsel. Thank you very much. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.